What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a really fun show for you today. I have with me, actually, a lawyer, Steve Kaufman, who has a pretty incredible history of being very, very involved with physicians and helping physicians out. So to give you a few points before I actually welcome Steve, he describes himself as a doctor's lawyer. He went to Cornell Law School, graduated back in 1985, and has really spent his life working with doctors. He's helped doctors move throughout, uh, move to different jobs, sign contracts through 49 states and some territories. He has worked with partnership agreements, purchases, startups, disciplinary proceedings, all kinds of stuff. And he has also told me that not only does he uh, deal with doctors at work, but also when he gets home. So his wife is a pediatrician and actually the managing partner of a practice and so has helped uh, and learned, I'm sure, from her. Coincidentally, of course, my wife is a pediatrician, and so we have that in common as well. But when I uh, met Steve and we talked a little, I thought this would just be so interesting. He actually gives talks on on contracts and helping doctors with contracts uh, at all different places across the country, and I thought it would be really useful for listeners to get to learn uh, some really key things from Steve if anybody's wondering about contracts, negotiations, or anything like that. So we're going to talk about some key stuff there today. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, my pleasure, Jed. Great, great to be here. All right. So uh, I want to remind everyone before we actually start uh, with the topic that there's a lot of great ways to get involved in the conversation. You can go to ACRAC.com and leave comments there. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at ACRAC Podcast. You can follow me at Jay Wolpaw. That's J-W-O-L-P-A-W. And we now have a new Facebook group, the ACRAC Facebook group that you can join and take part in interesting conversations. Thanks so much to our intern, Kimia Kashkuli, for her great work on social media. All right, let's jump right in. And uh, Steve, let me ask you. So you have said to me that there are kind of what you like to think of as the two biggest mistakes that doctors make when they're considering contracts. So tell me, let's talk about those two mistakes. What's the first one? Uh, The first one you make is, well, you you think you can do it yourself. 
you, you guys are all so smart and you're so used to conquering everything you've ever done and working so hard. You say to yourself, ah, it's just a piece of paper. It's a contract. I know how to read English. I can do this all by myself. And, and I see that for employment contracts, partnership agreements, leases, you name it. If it's in writing and you need to sign it, I've met lots and lots of doctors who say, yeah, I can do that myself. And that's almost always a big mistake. Yeah, I believe that. Like you said, I think a lot of people in medicine are both used to being self-sufficient, having to figure things out for themselves, and also, you know, consider themselves to be fairly good at figuring things out. And so it doesn't surprise me that you find that to be the case. So what is the, what are the downsides to that? Oh, the, well, the downsides are you sign contracts that are bad for you. You, uh, you end up working harder than you want, making less money than you want. You, you, you sign a lease with terms that aren't as good as they should be. Um, you, you, you end up in, in your ever, in your effort to do good, which is right. Your wife's a pediatrician. Most doctors are trying to do good in your efforts to do good. You get run over by people who are trying to do well. Um, mm, so interesting. You, you, you really want to understand what you're getting into when you, when you get presented with a contract. I, I look at contracts like this. You, you've got a piece of paper in front of you and the very first thing you got to do is you've got to say to yourself, what does this really say? You, you need to really understand it, read it, understand it completely. And then once you do that, you can say, well, how is this different than the deal I thought I was getting into? How is it different than the deal I wanted? What are the things in here that are bad for me that I never even thought about before? And then I make a list. Typically, what do I want to change? And I, and I don't mean commas. I don't, I don't worry about wordsmithing. We're talking about... I want more money. I want more vacation. I want a 10-year lease and not a five-year lease. And you list out all the business issues, and then you got to prioritize the issues. And once they're prioritized, what do you really care about the most? Then you got to figure out, well, what arguments can I make that'll get me what I want? Is there, is there a national survey of salaries that says I should get more? Is, is the doctor in the office next to be making more? Do I have special skills that deserve more? You've got to figure out what your arguments are, and then you've got to figure out how to present it. And in going through all of that, there are a lot of things that doctors, as smart as you are, you don't have the skills or experience to really do that well. Um, let, me, let me give you an example. Um, yeah. You've got a contract and it's been written by a lawyer to be read by lawyers. You guys, frankly, you guys went to the wrong school. You spent four years in medical school learning the secret language of doctors. Um, I spent three years in law school learning the secret language of lawyers. Um, yeah, and those two are not the same. Uh, they're not even close. I, I think it's safe to say that whatever contract you have in front of you, it's not in English. Period. Yeah. It's not in English. And on top of that, remember, it was written by a lawyer whose whose job it is is to protect the other side. I mean, I think of lawyers like me, and I go to a lot of parties, and I, I got a lot of doctors who are friends, and I'm introduced to a lot of doctors, and I'm sure you and your 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 listeners have experienced this, but I get introduced to a doctor and they find out I'm a lawyer and they take a step backwards. And mm -hmm. it, right. I mean, you guys are almost trained to fear us. I think sometimes 
Um, yeah, I think that the, the fear of uh, and I don't know that it's fear of, of the lawyer or the person, but I think you're absolutely right. The the fear in medicine of, um, you know, getting sued and therefore anything connected to kind of medical, the medical legal world is definitely pretty out there. Yep. And, and, and because of that, what you got to remember is the other guy's lawyer is the devil. Right. Your lawyer is God's gift to man. Right. Because the lawyer's got to look out. I've got if I'm your lawyer, I have to look out for your best interests above all else, which means the person who wrote the contract that you're handed is looking out for the employers or the banks or the insurance company's best interest above all else, which means that contract is designed to be better for the other side than for you. And you've got to figure that out and figuring that out when you went to the wrong school can be difficult. Um, it, there's another real good reason. It might even be a, a bigger problem about understanding what you're really getting into, a bigger problem than not understanding the ins and outs of the language. And I think it's just a lack of practical experience with what the words mean in in life. How, how do these things go bad? You know, I, I don't know. Maybe earlier, for, let me give you an example. Maybe earlier in your career, I don't know, you saw a surgeon be, you were, you were in the OR and you saw a surgeon who did something that looked easy, calm, everything else. And later on, years later, you realize, wow, that was really complicated. That that guy right. did a spectacular job. I just didn't recognize it at the time. Sure. Um, well, that's what happens with, with contracts. I mean, I've seen thousands, literally thousands of contracts. I've probably done 5,000 employment contracts alone. And, wow. you, you, and you see how they crash. I get phone calls from all over the country. I've been fired. I've been disciplined. What can I do about it? And you go back and you take a look at the contracts. Um, you know, let, let me give you a couple examples of how you guys don't quite match the words to the reality. Um, yeah. Mo- most of you guys will look at an employment contract. There'll be a long list of things that can get you fired. It'll be 10, 12 different things. And most doctors look at that list and they say, hey, I'm a good doctor. I'm a good person. I'm not going to get fired. I'm not worried about this. And even if they read it, they say, nah, never going to be me. I had a guy who was fired for being unprofessional because he was looking over the shoulder of a colleague while she was doing email. And they deem that unprofessional because there might be something privileged in there. Um, Very common, which I'll give you another example, uh, a very common thing to join a big group that is headquartered out of state. And you'll read the whole contract and it'll look lovely. And at the end, there's there'll be there's what you guys will think of, what non-lawyers will think of as boilerplate, the standard stuff at the end of the contract. Um, my nephew, who's in medical school, calls it sneaky endings. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, you know, I, I what I thought you were saying was that they, you know, you get language in there that seems to a non-lawyer like it's oh, this must just be what they put in all of these. There's no point in in trying to get it ah, changed. And yes, yet- yes, yes. Thank you. So you'll get to the end and you'll find that it says you're you're sitting in Boston and you'll find that it says California law applies or Michigan law applies. And now you don't know what your contract means at all. And worse, because your your employer is headquartered in California, your contract says that if you have a fight with your employer, you have to have it in California, even though you're sitting in Boston. 
And this right. is all because you say, eh, this will never, this will, I don't, you know, who cares what law applies? Doesn't make any difference. This is never going to happen to me. Right. No, that's a great example. And and what I, you know, what this makes me think of, Steve, is that, you know, in medicine, you know, you, if you are not a doctor and you're looking, let's say you walk into the ICU and you see the monitor and there's all these numbers and they're all changing and they're bouncing around and there might even be some alarms. And that's all probably, you know, very disturbing. You don't know which of those things are emergencies and which are totally routine. Uh, And yet I am an ICU doctor and I look at that and I know whether to panic or not. And some of those things I know we should just ignore and other things I think we need to act on right away. But that is what this makes me think of is that you look at a contract and you say you can tell which parts are just boilerplate and don't matter and which parts are really important. But I have no idea looking at that same contract. Right. So, I mean, it's it's very much like you, uh, you need to be you need to have the experience and be able to speak the language to understand what's what that contract is, what's actually important in there. Yeah, that's that that's very well put. I mean, I have lawyers who I deal with who don't fully understand. Now, I'll give you some lingo. Don't fully understand the subrogation provisions in their own contracts or the indemnification provisions in the contracts. And I guarantee you there are very few doctors who fully understand what indemnification means when you promise to indemnify your employer or the other side. And just for what it's worth, the real quick lesson is it means. Yeah. What does it mean? It means you agree to pay the other side's bills. So if you indemnify me and I get sued because of something you do, you've agreed to pay all my bills. Oh, not, I had no idea. Not not a good thing to put in a contract. Tell, you tell, tell the other side, go buy more insurance. I'm a, yeah. I'm a bad insurance company. I don't collect premiums. I don't want to be paying your bills. Interesting. Okay. And I mean, so, you know, in your experience, if a, if a standard contract in a group says, you know, I indemnify my employer, um, can you say to them, actually, I want this part taken out and and that is something they would consider doing? Oh, goodness. Uh, there you go. You've, you've, you've jumped to the second big mistake, Uh um, which is the falling into the it's standard trap. Um, okay. From my viewpoint, there's no such thing as standard. Okay. It does. Standard does not exist. Um, standard is a myth that is perpetuated by employers and banks and landlords to try and get you to sign something that's bad for you. Um, anybody who's got everybody who's got a job has heard an employer say, "Hey, sign here. It's standard. It can't be changed. It's what we give everybody." It's just flat out not true. I have changed. Not true at all. I have negotiated changes with the biggest landlords in the country, the biggest healthcare systems in the country. Um, to believe that something is standard is to fall into a trap that's been set for you guys since you started residency. You that's, no, Yeah, no, that's so interesting, Steve. And so, well, let me ask you this. So does it matter um, if you are kind of, if you are a big wig or not. So what I mean is if you're coming straight out of residency and you're applying for a job versus if you have already made a name for yourself and you're switching jobs, does, uh, does that matter in terms of whether or not you can kind of get some exceptions to that boilerplate kind of quote unquote standard or in your experience is ever, does ever, is it just about being willing to negotiate more than whether or not you can actually get it changed? I think it's a little bit of both. 
the the bigger you are, the more grant money you bring, the the bigger your name is, the better your leverage because you're harder to replace, right? There's not a line of people just like you to take the job if you don't take it. So right. you have better negotiating leverage, but that doesn't mean that when you're a resident, you don't have negotiating leverage because you got to remember when you're handed the contract, that's the one that means the employer has spent money to prepare a piece of paper just for you. You are now their number one choice for the job. And while you're negotiating and while they're waiting around for you to decide, their second choice took a job and their third choice took a job. And they're getting closer and closer to when they need you. And they're getting under more and more pressure. Um, you have leverage when you look for jobs. And, and on top of that, most contracts are designed to have things in them that will be taken out if you ask. Interesting. It's, they're, well, think of it this way. What, de- <clears throat> excuse me, what department chairman would ever offer two things. What department chairman would ever make his best offer to you first time out? Right. right. You don't get to be chairman by making the first offer, best offer, first time out. Right. And then you've got the problem of the lawyers are protecting their side of it. So the hospital lawyer, the practice lawyer is protecting the hospital or the practice, which means they're putting things in the contract. Like if you get in a fight with your employer, you'll pay all your employer's legal bills. Well, if you ask, they'll take that out. Often, look, there's only one rule of negotiation. It's, look, I can't guarantee you that if you ask, uh, you'll get what you want. Can't guarantee that at all. Can't guarantee you'll get any what you want. Can't guarantee you'll get half. But what I can absolutely 100% guarantee is if you don't ask, you're not going to get it. You you have got to ask. There's lots of stuff put in contracts for, uh, for, for the naive. You know, maybe we'll get away with it. You know, I think of it this way. I um, I worked my way through college painting houses. Used to knock on doors, go to neighborhoods, knock on doors of houses that looked like they needed to be painted, and literally ask them, you know, hey, I'm here, I paint houses, I'm a college painter, can I paint your house? And every now and then, you'd knock on a door and you'd get somebody you'd say who wanted the house painted, but you'd say, you know what, I don't think I want this job. This person is going to be more trouble than they're worth, or maybe the house is too tall or too dangerous, or there's just something about it that makes it a really undesirable job. Mm-hmm. You, you tell them you want twice as much money as you need. If they don't take it, you didn't want it anyway. And if they right. take it, you scored, right. right? Well, employment contracts, a lot of contracts are like that. There's stuff put in there that, you know, where they're asking for twice as much as they really want. And if you take it, well, you know, good for them. And if you don't take it, well, they take it. You know, if you say, I, I won't, I don't want that provision that says I have to pay all your legal bills. Well, they say, oh, well, all right, we took, we'll take that out. And then when you ask for more money, they get to say to you, I already took out that other thing about legal bills. What more do you want? Right. It's right. designed to take out. So you got to ask. Well, that's great to know. And of course, most of us would have no idea, right? I mean, I think A, would have no idea that it was even up for negotiation and B, wouldn't even know what it meant. And so would have a hard time figuring out whether to ask for it to be taken out. So, you know, obviously uh, that's really important. Um, Is there, uh, you know, you've said to me that there's kind of an inherent bias in trying to do this on your own. What do you mean by that? Ah, 
you know, there, there's a saying, doctors, you guys aren't supposed to treat yourselves, right? Because right. you're, you're too close to it, you're going to make a mistake. There, there's a similar problem with being your own lawyer. There's a saying, uh, a, a person who represents himself has a fool for a lawyer. <laughs> And 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 the problem is you can't hit yourself upside the head when you're being unreasonable and you can't see your own biases and you can't see your own emotions that are that are driving things. Um, You know, I can't hit. I'm unlikely to hit myself upside the head when I'm being silly. Um, You know, I've had lots of doctors who have their heart set on a particular job. You know, for what for whatever reason, this is the job they want. Maybe it's in their hometown. Maybe it's with uh, a, a childhood friend. Uh, maybe it's just walking distance to work, you know, from where they live, and they just love mm-hmm. it. But they've emotionally fallen in love with a job, and then the contract comes in, and it's full of red flags that tell me that this might not be a good place to work. They're, they're chiseling them on the pay, on the amount of uh, CME time and money you get. There's all kinds of oppressive things in the contract, just red flag after red flag after red flag. And I find that people, you kind of have to talk them through that because they don't really want to see it because their heart is set on it. And if you don't have kind of a neutral person who isn't, who isn't emotionally involved in what's going on, it's real easy to let your emotion drive and make a mistake. Um, I see that all the time. Um, I'll see. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, I was going to say that that seems that makes a lot of sense. It seems like really important to have someone, you know, who's removed a little bit, uh, be able to give you some advice. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, and it's, it's not, it's not, it's not just, advice from somebody who's done it a lot of times, although that helps and you see it, it's somebody who's not emotionally involved in it. Um, right. It's really, it's really hard to say to yourself, well, here's a classic. Everybody goes to sell their house, right? You own a house, you go to sell your house. Everybody thinks their house is worth more than it is. Right. Well, lots of people say, Hey, I'm a great doctor. I must be worth more than that. And maybe right. you're not. And you're not the best person to tell yourself that you're not. And so you, 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 you set yourself up for asking for unreasonable things and being unreasonable in negotiations, which can get you in a lot of trouble. Yeah, that uh, makes a lot of sense. So when you if you're helping a doctor out with this, do you I mean, you obviously help them kind of put this list together that you talked about and, you know, kind of what 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 here do you want to ask for changes on? What's your priority? But then are there in like, do you ever go with doctors to kind of an in-person negotiation or is it more like getting them prepped and they do it? Or how does this usually work? Um, I tip Well, a couple of things. I typically do it whatever makes the doctor, whatever makes you most comfortable. So we might go through and the list is a bunch of things that are related maybe to your working day. What your shifts, you know, you were told how many shifts you were going to work. It's not in the contract. You were told what office you were going to work at. It's not in the contract. And you feel entirely comfortable going back and talking to the boss about those things. So if you're comfortable with it, what I'll do is give you a negotiating lesson. Um, I've taught negotiation at national meetings before. I've been a judge at national negotiating contests. I, I, I didn't even know that those existed. Yeah. Well, for, for lawyers, they do. Um, okay. That's what we do every day is we negotiate. I guess that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
No, I've partnered up with a a professor um, at a at a DC business school who teaches graduate teaches negotiation in the graduate school, and we have lectured together, and it's been wonderful because I've got all this practical experience, and she's got all this fabulous book experience. And it's really interesting when we explain to people together because she puts a wonderful framework on negotiation and I fill out the framework with life. It's really kind of interesting. But sounds interesting. But I digress. Um, I'll give you a I'll give you a lesson if you want to negotiate yourself. You'll go off and you'll try it. Maybe you get half of what you want, you'll call me back, we'll talk about it. Maybe I ghost write for you. Um, you know, going back and talking isn't always the best way to negotiate. Sometimes it's better to do it in writing. There's a lot to assess when you decide how to negotiate. It's probably a separate talk. Um, right. Sometimes I go back. People say, Steve, I don't want to be anywhere near this. No, thank you. And they'll get me the phone number of the other side's lawyer and I will negotiate it directly. Hmm. And and sometimes I'll go, I've, I've been in meetings before, I mean, one of the most memorable meetings I've ever been in negotiating. I was at a hospital, the hospital lawyer was there, the chairman of the department, my doc, and, and me. And, it was, and I remember it vividly because it was a round table. And my doctor had been told, you are going to work at the hospital itself, which was really important to her for a variety of reasons. And when the contract came in, Instead of saying she would work at the hospital, it said she'd work at the hospital or such other place as she might be assigned. <laughs> Not good, right? So we tried right. to change it to you work at the hospital and such other places as you might agree to. Oh, yeah. And they wouldn't agree. So ah. we trundled off to the hospital and I sat around that round table and I remember it was round because I felt like I was at a vice presidential debate. <laughs> right where I asked the question and they spun me round and round answering anything but the question I was asking. And, right. And ultimately, ultimately, and this is one of the big reasons why you got to negotiate. Ultimately, they conceded they were building another facility about 10 miles away and they thought she'd be a good fit. And they wanted to keep open their options to move her there. And she passed on the job. Wow. Right. And and that's another reason to always negotiate, because you'll learn something about the job that you didn't know when you push people about why their contract is different from what you were told. Yeah, it's you learn a lot of valuable information that way. Um, th that's another reason to negotiate. And another really fabulous reason to negotiate is you'll learn something about your boss. Yeah, tell me, tell me more. What do you mean by that? Well, when you go back and you ask for very reasonable things, change things, you were told that you're going to work here and it says you might work there and the, and, and the bonus system says, well, we'll tell you what it is after you sign. And you go back and you ask for very reasonable things. And the boss comes back and pats you on the head and is really paternalistic about it or tries to bully you. Well, imagine what it's going to be like after you sign. If they try and bully you before you sign, when they're trying to be nice to you to convince you to come work, um, it, it can be a real problem. I mean, I'll give you a real extreme example. Absolutely true. It happened about two weeks ago. I had a doctor. We decided the best way for her to negotiate was I helped her ghost write an email to the boss 
because she thought that she would not be able to make progress face to face. So she'd write it. And it was a, it was a list of things that were very reasonable and very fair. And the email came back to her. This is as close to a direct quote as I can remember without having it in front of me. The email came back and said, you are so cute. No, really so cute. Don't worry about these things. They'll all work out. Wow. Okay. Now that's pretty striking. Yeah. Quite obviously she did not take that job. Yeah. But if she, but if she just said, I trust the boss, the boss says it'll be okay. They tell me this is standard and she just signed. She wouldn't have found that out until after it was too late and she'd given up her other job opportunities. Right. Right. You really, really need to ask. Um, you know, there, there's another, there's another really important part to negotiation on top of, you know, getting more stuff, right? More money, learning about the job, learning about the boss. There's something really critical to negotiation. And that's kind of the psychology of your first job. Um, and, and it, it persists into second job, third, fourth, but the psychology of it says, don't negotiate. And, and it's not just because you got jammed down with that first residency contract and everybody's always telling you standard, standard, standard. Psychologically, people are afraid to negotiate because they're concerned that they're going to look greedy or they're going to look needy or they're going to look pushy, mm-hmm. right? And they're worried that they'll lose the job or they'll lose the deal if they, if they assert themselves too much and the boss doesn't like, it. you know, right. The, the, the reality is that's irrational. Nobody loses a job because they go and they reasonably and professionally and politely ask to have the deal they've been presented changed. It doesn't happen. I've done it 5,000 times. I've had two jobs lost. One was me saying to an employer who had a non-compete for the whole state of New Mexico, the whole uh-huh. state. They're now illegal in New Mexico, by the way. But the whole state of New Mexico, I went back and I said, this looks big. And they said to me, we gave the job to somebody else. Now, I don't know whether that was true or not. If it wasn't true, shame on them. And if it was true, bigger shame on them, because you should only have one contract out on the street for one job at a time. Right. I've made two offers for one jobs and no, no. I've had that happen once in New Mexico. I had it happen once in Baltimore and I got, I've got over 5,000 jobs where it doesn't happen. Now that's not to say you can't go in and negotiate yourself and be a jerk about it. And then the employer looks at you and says, Whoa, that's not what I thought I was getting. And they changed their mind, but that's the way you did it. Not that you did it. Right. Um, That that makes a lot of sense. Right. I mean, I, there, there's a favorite Jennifer Lawrence quote. I can see we're about out of time here, but I really want to share something from Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, no, please do. And we can take a few more minutes. That's not a problem. All right. Oh, great. Um, maybe you all remember when um, Sony got hacked by the North Koreans because Fearless Leader didn't like that movie Sony had put out that mocked him. Right. Uh, and. And when they hacked it and they released all Sony's emails, Jennifer Lawrence found out that she'd been paid substantially less money than her male co-stars. And for anybody who doesn't know Jennifer Lawrence, she is the highest paid actress in Hollywood. She's a crazy big draw. 
And she found out that she had been paid less money and she got really, really annoyed. And she, she ended up writing an article about how annoyed she was with herself. She wasn't mad at Sony. She was mad at herself and she was mad at herself because the guys had gone and negotiated and she had said, I don't want to be perceived as needy. I don't want to be perceived as greedy. I want to be perceived as a really nice person. So she didn't negotiate. Uh And she thought about that. And I'm going to quote her here at the end, because I think it really sums up the way folks ought to think about should I negotiate or not. Jennifer Lawrence said, I'm over trying to find the adorable way to state my opinion and still be likable. F that. And that's the way I feel about it. You've got to negotiate unless you believe your standard. Don't ever accept the idea that the contract is standard so it can't be changed. It's it's BS. Yeah, that's great advice. So it sounds like the two mistakes, right, that that doctors make are one, figuring they can do it by themselves, and two, what you call the believing it's standard, right, the, the it's standard trap. So thinking, oh, this is not negotiable when anything could be negotiable. And then the psychological part of this is being kind of afraid to try because of not wanting to upset the employer or potentially lose the job or thinking that you'll be seen as greedy or a bad person when that is, you know, overwhelmingly not the case in your vast experience. Uh, a fabulous summary, Jeb. Fabulous. Exactly, exactly right. Let me ask you a couple things before we end. So one is uh, that, you know, I know, and, and um, you know, you give, um, as you said, you give uh, talks and, and even courses on negotiation. If you uh, had to give, you know, one or two tips to people out there who may be going into negotiate, I mean, one would be obviously don't be afraid to negotiate. Are there other tips you give in these talks that you think would be helpful to people who, who are wondering how they could do a better job negotiating? Oh, you mean besides hiring me to help them do it? Yeah, that's right. Don't give the whole store away. But yeah. if there's a, are there are there any little tips you're willing to give? Yeah, oh, for sure. Um, first one is never underestimate the power of silence. Um, when I like that. there there is a natural affinity to filling in silence, it's, it's very uncomfortable. It's very awkward. Um, when you are told the job pays one hundred and seventy five thousand dollars, and you know it's worth two fifty, just stare back at the person. They don't know what you're thinking. I, I, have I been caught? Do they know? I have gotten substantially more money for people by just going silent when told something that I didn't like. It, yeah. it, is, it is an astoundingly good thing. Um, the other one I would encourage, if, if you haven't already learned it, I would encourage you to learn reflective listening. You're familiar? Like you, you mirror back the underlying emotion of what people are saying to you. Right. Um, it, it's 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 surprisingly powerful. If, you, if you've never done it, Google it, look it up. Um, it's very awkward to do in the beginning. But once you kind of get the hang of it, it's wonderful. I, I mean, I've even used it. Uh, my, my son was in the, my son, who's you know, now an engineer in Pittsburgh. My son, when he was in the backseat of the car in his car seat, screaming, I want a cookie. I want a cookie. I want a cookie. Uh, I turned back to him and said, Dan, you sound like you're hungry. Right, right. What? Name, I, name got, the emotion. 
Yep, name the emotion. It exactly worked. I, I had recognized his problem. We were now on the same side. I got silence while we went home to get him a cookie. It right. works with it works with spouses. It works with the guy you're trying to buy a, a refrigerator from at Sears. It works with everybody. Um, I highly encourage people to learn. How, if you don't already know, if you if you didn't learn about it in school, if they didn't, if you didn't learn about it in training, it's it's great with patients too. It really gets I people couldn't to agree more. Yeah, I think that's. I think it's an. Uh, couldn't agree more. I think it's an amazing tip for just you know kind of interacting with people in any in any area of life and part of you know kind of the crucial conversations type approach to you know dealing well with communication. Um, I am curious, it, it, you know, tell me, give me an example if you can of how in a job negotiation where that might come up or where you might use that technique. Um, you get an outrageous non-compete from a private practice. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you're okay. So a non-compete depends, should depend on what the geographic draw of the practice is. What are the demographics? Where do the patients come from? Right. So as a, as a general rule, the more urban the place you go, the smaller the non-compete. So, you know, go to New York as a primary care doctor, anesthesiologist, anything, critical care, although you guys shouldn't have non-competes, by the way. But get a, we can talk about that if you want, but uh, so you should have a small non-compete. You're going to an urban place. Maybe you're, maybe you're in Baltimore, you downtown, you should have a three mile non-compete, five, something like that. Cause patients don't travel far. And you go and you get a 30 mile non-compete. And you look at it, you go, this is outrageous. What's, what's going on here? All right. So you go back to the employer and you use what I think is the, is magic word. You say, why? Ask mm-hmm. why they do it. And a lot of times what happens is they're doing it because they want control. They want the money uh, and they won't admit that to you. So they tell you something, they make something up and you just address it. But sometimes there's a real why. And they'll tell you, well, you know, we, I brought in five years ago, I brought in this, this guy who I thought was absolutely fabulous. Um, and we had him here for two years And then he cut out on us and he stole all our contracts with the hospital and he took all my employees with me and never again am I going to let that happen. Right. You look back at him and you go, wow, that really was, that sounds traumatic. Right. That must have made you mad. Right. Darn right. I mean, now now you're, you understand them. You're on the same level. It really helps ratchet it down so you can have a conversation about how you're not that person and it's not necessary to do that for you. Yep. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And also, you know, I think one of the the things about that kind of reflective listening is it's a way to bring you more in line with the person you're listening to. And so if you are, you know, if you get make your the person you're negotiating with feel like you're kind of on their side here, right, then you're going to just going to help you more, I would imagine, in getting what you want. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you should not think some negotiations are I win, you lose. Right. The, the, the interest rate on your loan. Right. Uh, The lower it is, the more I win, the more the bank loses. But most employment situations, there's a win win out there. They're worried about something. The employer is worried about something. And 
what they've written is 10 times worse. It gives them the protection, but it just totally smokes you. It's just terrible for you. Um, and you want to say to them, why have you done that? They explain themselves. And then you say to them, well, go back to my, my, uh, my example of the non-compete. And they want, they want the 30 miles. And you ask them why. And they tell you, well, now you can go back and you can say, well, look, here's how that affects me. Here's how that's bad for me. Um, I, I'm from this town and I don't want to have to leave town. Um, isn't there some kind of exception we can carve where you won't get hurt and I don't have to leave town? So maybe I can go work over at that hospital over there where you don't do any work rather than just say, I can't work anywhere within 30 miles. Um, you know, maybe I can work in the urgent care center. I can work, uh, I can work in the, um, uh, you know, I can, I can work in some pl- somebody's surgery center wh- where you have, it won't affect you at all. Um, and you try right. and find these compromises where they say, yeah, you're right. That's, I'm not trying to stop you from doing that, but, right. but you have to have the discussion to make it work. Yeah, that's great. All right. And the final thing I want to ask you is actually about non-compete clauses. So, you know, I've heard all kinds of stuff I've, I've heard, and I've only been uh, at one at this job at Johns Hopkins. I've only been here since I completed fellowship. So I haven't really had to deal with this, but I have heard about a variety of things about non-compete clauses. I've heard they're not enforceable. I've heard that, uh, you know, they, people just use them to scare you. I've heard that the opposite of that. So what, you know, does it vary from state to state? Uh, what is the deal with non-compete clauses? And then you also mentioned that anesthesiologists, you know, shouldn't really have to deal with this anyway. Uh, and tell me, tell me if that, you know, why is that? What should, what do you, what advice do you have for people about these non-compete clauses? Non-competes, as a general rule, if they're legal in your state, they're going to be enforceable. So anybody who tells you, so you're in Maryland, anybody who says to you in Maryland, don't worry about it. It's unenforceable. They're giving you bad advice. Okay. Because even if you can win a lawsuit over them, and and there could be one that a court would find unenforceable. I I happen to think that the, the John Hopkins standard one is unenforceable and I'd love an opportunity to challenge it in court one day. Um, okay. Good to know. You know? Um, but that said, even if it's really, even if it can be beaten in court, you're still going to lose because the only sure winner in a fight over a non-compete is the lawyer. I'm, I'm going to make my $50,000. Maybe you'll win. Maybe you won't. But in the meantime, you got to pay me. And, and it's going to take a year to get through the courts. And during that year, nobody will give you a job in the restricted area. They, they won't right. do it because they don't want to get sued. Right. So you lose. Even if you win, you lose. And most non-competes are written so that the actual non-compete, the language that says that you won't practice medicine within some geographic region for some amount of time, that's maybe one little paragraph. And then the next three pages of your contract – are legalese that I will sum up as you agree you lose if there's ever a fight. Mm. So you're starting in a huge, huge hole. So if you're in a state where they're legal, and some states they're not, California, they're not legal, New Mexico, Rhode Island, and Colorado. I don't know, I have to look them up each time. You don't remember them all. But if you're in a state where they're legal, they're going to be enforceable. Um, 
it's just it's just the way the world works. Okay. Now, now anesthesia, I assume, because we don't really have patients who come for us, right? We we are a support service that takes care of, uh, you know, anybody coming in for surgery, but nobody comes to Hopkins saying, oh, I know why I'm going there. I want my anesthesia from Walpaw. And if he goes somewhere else, I'm going to get my anesthesia there. So that's probably why it doesn't make sense. In anesthesia. That, that's correct. The only time you should, there are other reasons employers use non-competes. And I, my my opinion, as a lawyer, they're not valid. Um, the the proper legal use of a non-compete should be to keep you, first off, they're misnamed. They should be called restrictive covenants because they're, mm-hmm. they're not really meant to keep you from competing. They're meant to keep you from taking the goodwill of your employer with you when you leave. And the goodwill right. would be the patients and the income stream associated with the patients. A lot of hospital systems, you, and then, and, Right. So you can't take patients with you. So why do you have a non-compete? I would submit that a lot of hospital systems use non-competes as ways to suppress wages and prevent turnover. Uh-huh. Right. Because if you can't take an offer from a competing hospital, they don't have to worry about you getting a better offer from a competing hospital. And they treat you poorly. And there are a lot of I'm sure I don't need to tell you and your listeners all the different ways that hospitals can treat doctors poorly. If they treat you poorly, you look at your contract and you say, oh, I'm trapped because I'm going to have to leave the city I live in and sometimes the state I live in to get another job. And, hey, my spouse has a good job and my kids are in school and I can't be picking up and leaving. And right. you get trapped, and you get trapped by your non-compete. Um, and so, so do people negotiate their way? Uh, you know, in other words, when you're, is that something that should be on the table? Is to say, look, I know you have a standard non-compete. I don't want to sign it. I, I if you don't ask, you won't get it. Right. Um, right. I, absolutely. Look, I, I have. There are there are institutional reasons, and, and again, I'm, I'm going to separate hospitals from private practices. Okay, so if you're a private practice with a contract to provide anesthesia services or critical care services to the hospitals or an independent company with a contract to provide it, um, the proper non-compete there is probably to say you won't mess with the contract when you leave. Right. I I can go to another hospital in another group, but if I'm covering hospital A, I'm now I'm learning the way hospital A works. I've been introduced to the people who run the place. I won't make a grab for hospital A's work to replace you. That's a fair non-compete in a in a a private practice setting. Um, Right. In in a hospital setting, I, I don't know how you justify it. I really don't. Other than to suppress wages. And, and I, yeah. think, I think you got to negotiate. I have drawers. There are institutional reasons why employers won't negotiate um, be, beyond the business reasons. Um, sometimes it's just a pain in the neck. The legal department is overwhelmed. There aren't enough lawyers. There's too many people. So they put out a form and they tell everybody, use the form. You can change the money you put in there, but otherwise use the form. And well, now the right. department chairman, the recruiters, they all just say it's standard. It can't be changed. It can't be changed. What they're really saying is we won't change it. Not it can't be changed. Right, right. It, well, so they have this institutional problem where they're not allowed to change the contract. Well, I have a drawer full of side letters where where hospital chairmen say, 
Hey, when this contract is over, I promise the hospital won't enforce the non-compete. Mm. Now they can tell everybody, everybody's got the non-compete in the contract. But it's not quite true. Yeah, interesting. Hey, there's, um, I, look, I have moved, I've had negotiations where I have had hospital lawyers tell me, look, I can't change this. There's 3,000 lawyers who've done it. And I point out to them the problem they have with it, not necessarily the non-compete, but how what they've done is actually bad for everybody. And I have been the catalyst for change in thousands of contracts because I've explained to hospital lawyers that their contract doesn't do what they think it does. Yeah. Oh, this is such interesting stuff. Um, Steve, thank you so much. Uh, I think this is really going to be eye-opening for people. And um uh, you know, hopefully helpful as people go out there to negotiate, hopefully with uh, an added impetus from your recommendation. So thank you. Uh, I want to do the portion of our show now where we do random recommendations. So I'm going to turn to you and ask if you have anything that you'd recommend to our listeners uh, in a, that doesn't have to have anything to do with what we just talked about, but anything that's uh, on your mind that you'll be thinking about or talking about uh, over the next couple of weeks that you would recommend to listeners to check out. Uh, let me think about that for a second. I think um, check out. I, I I listen to a lot of podcasts. I have I have a dog who requires way too much walking, and I listen to podcasts <laughs> when I walk him. And I have found Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. And I, yes, and it, it, it some sometimes I can't listen to it, but sometimes they are fascinating. The man is a wonderful storyteller with really interesting stories. Yeah, so you're referring to revisionist history. Yeah, exactly. See, there you go. Can you? Can, yeah. You, you second. You second the recommendation. I do, and think I, I absolutely do. I think I've recommended it before, and I, I will second it again. I, I think it's really great. I, I don't know if you've listened to all. This is the he just finished the third season. I thought the first season was really great. I thought the second season was hit or miss, and I really enjoyed this third season. I, I haven't listened to it all yet. Um, I, I agree with you that. I, I agree with you there. I think my favorite that I've listened to so far is the difference between American chutzpah and Israeli chutzpah. I thought that was fascinating. Just wonderful listen. Wonderful. Absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. That's a great recommendation. Thank you. And my, my recommendation, my random recommendation uh, is actually going to be not unrelated. So there is a, another podcast that actually is put out by Pushkin Industries, which is a, a podcast group that Malcolm Gladwell started along with Jacob Weisberg, uh, who was the um, chairman of the Slate Group. And they uh, do a podcast called Solvable. Now, I don't love all the episodes. I think some are good. Some are a little less good. The idea is to interview people who have kind of really neat ideas about how to solve major problems in the world. But the most recent one was about trying to solve kind of global poverty. And the guy they're interviewing, and I'm sorry, I don't actually know his name exactly, but the um, one of the fascinating things was that one of the things they're trying to solve is to make sure that everyone in the world, even very poor people in, in very rural countries and areas, have access to sanitation for human waste because it can make a huge difference in terms of infection and all kinds of stuff. And they've developed these earthworm-based toilets. And it was just fascinating to hear about these. First of all, it's incredibly cheap to build. And, and this is what's really crazy, Steve. If you build – the way they build these things in the tank – what they have is some some kind of stones and some dirt and then uh, about a kilogram of earthworms. And above that, there's about a foot and a half of space. And it's into that foot and a half of space that the human waste goes. And they ask this question, 
There's a foot and a half. How long do you think one of those toilet lasts with a foot and a half of space for a family of five using it, you know, all day, every day for their toilet needs? <laughs> do, you, do, do you have to remove the, uh, the, the byproducts from the worms? No. You don't do anything. So you just go into the, so, you know, it's like a squat, you know, you squat over a hole and then it go, it takes you kind of through a chute into this container um, that has the earthworms and the rocks and the stones, but there's only a foot and a half of space in that container. Well, somehow, somehow my education has, has somewhere in my education, I neglected to learn the kind of information you'd need to answer this question. So, well, I'm going to say I give up. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I mean, of course, I, I hear this question and I had no idea, but certainly you'd think a foot and a half of space can't last that long. Eight years is the answer. Oh my Eight goodness. years with a, with a family of five using it for all their toilet needs. And the reason is because the earthworms, turns out, love human waste and they digest it and they break it down. Most of it is turned into carbon dioxide, which floats away. And then a small percentage of it is released as uh, actual kind of uh, decontaminated matter that can then go out the bottom of this tank and into the earth and and not and has no no issues whatsoever. So anyway, just it was fascinating to hear about this and that that may be one of the things that really um, helps change the way that sanitation is done across the world. So check out that most recent episode of the Solvable Podcast. I think it's really interesting. Ah, great! Um, I'm, I'm on it. Absolutely. Check it out. And listeners, if you have random recommendations of your own that you want to share with the audience, send them in at crack at crack.com and or tweet them at us either at me at Jay Wolpa or at Akrak podcast. And we will pick some and include them in the episodes. In fact, Andreas Johansson from Lund, Sweden, writes in to say he's got a random recommendation. He says he's been really intrigued in medical school and beyond by this whole question of Munchausen syndrome and malingering and Munchausen by proxy and all these kind of very interesting but difficult to tease out psychological diagnoses that you at least learn about if, if you don't actually see them in person. And he, he recommends a book that kind of tries to get into this a little bit and explore it. The book is called Playing Sick, Untangling the Web of Munchausen Syndrome, Munchausen by Proxy, Malingering, and Factitious Disorder. And it is uh, available on Amazon. We can put a link in the show notes, and it's by an author, Mark Feldman. So this is recommended by Andreas. And hey, if it sounds interesting to you, check it out. Thanks, Andreas, for sending in a random recommendation. Well, Steve, this is great. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing some really important thoughts. My, my pleasure. Thank you, Jeb. Really appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. All right. I thought that was so interesting. I learned a ton from talking to Steve, and I hope you did too. Let us know what you thought on the website where you can comment or tweet at us at ACRAC Podcast. I'm at Jay Wolpaw, and you can come on the Facebook group and let us know what you thought there. Thank you so much for listening. If you are a fan of the show, uh, go to the website, com. Leave a comment. We can all learn from what you have to say. And also consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It can really help others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations at paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. Huge thank you to Brian Park for making the show uh, outlines for some of the episodes. 
Enormous thank you to Kimia Cash Cooley, our amazing intern. Of course, our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo. He's amazing. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Steve Kaufman, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.